You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, my name is Sarah Linkert. I am the program coordinator for SESI. And please join me in welcoming Darren Tease, the final speaker in the Central Eurasian Studies Summer Institute's 2021 lecture series. Darren Tease graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2008 with a bachelor's degree in history. Darren joined the Foreign Service of the U.S. State Department in 2010 on the public diplomacy career path. Darren served his first tour as a Justice Sector Program Officer, the U.S. Embassy in Dushanbe, Tajikistan, from 2010 until 2012, where he managed border security and rule of law programming. Darren then served as the Fraud Prevention Manager in the consular section at the U.S. Embassy in Bucharest, Romania from 2013 to 2015. He served a year at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan from 2015 to 2016, managing academic exchange programs such as Fulbright. Following Kabul, Darren served as the public affairs officer in Vladivostok, Russia from 2017 to 2019. Darren recently finished a tour as the spokesperson and social media manager for the U.S. Embassy Dushanbe and will return as the public affairs officer in Dushanbe in September 2021. Darren studied four semesters of Farsi, Hindi, and Spanish while in college and has studied Tajiki, Dari, Romanian, and Russian since joining the Foreign Service. Thank you for being with us today, Darren. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. It's good to be here. Uh, glad to see a lot of interest in the uh, presentation today. Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, so as you as you mentioned, my main expertise is in Tajikistan. I've served already four years in that country, but I have traveled around Central Asia, and I've made the presentation today to be about Central Asia, uh, broadly speaking, and not specific to one country or language. Uh, so hopefully it'll be interesting to everybody uh, to, some, to some degree. Uh, I'm glad to be back uh, somehow involved in UW. Very happy to um, support my alma mater. Uh, so, um, and I'm glad to see a couple familiar faces as well. I'll get into it and um, we'll start off. I'll tell a little fun story about diplomacy in, in um, Central Asia, and then we'll get into some of the policy aspects. Then I'll talk a little bit about how language works in Central Asia. And I'm sure that there's a couple of people on the call that might have more information than I have on a couple of these subjects, they might be able to jump in in the Q&A section. But um, this is, um, this is uh, my perspectives on diplomacy and languages in Central Asia. I'll start, share, start sharing my presentation here. And we'll get into it. Okay, so you see here a map of Central Asia. Um, this is kind of our background for a lot of this, it keeps it all in perspective, you see sort of the neighborhood. Obviously, you're all experts in this already, but Iran, Afghanistan, China, Russia, I'll point out, those will come into play as we go through the presentation. First, I thought I should tell you kind of how I got interested in Central Asia. Uh, it seems like this very remote, distant land that very few people have been to, very people know about, and it's this sort of uh, Silk Road, um, you know, 
imagery, caravans and, and yurts and so on. Uh, it just seemed like this very interesting place from a young age, from middle school age even. I watched a PBS uh, documentary on it and it was a very unique area where different cultures, different ethnicities and religions and so on all combined into a, an interesting melting pot there, which was hard to categorize uh, like in many of the regions of the world. It partly crystallized through reading some of these books I've shown here on the screen. Uh, Robert Kaplan, uh, you know, he had some interesting travel essays that touched on Central Asia. When I was in eighth grade, I read this old history series um, called Makers of History from my dad's collection from 1906, which is definitely an old style romanticized version of some of these uh, great leaders in history and so on, but um, got me interested in the region at least, uh, Persia and, and Central Asia and, and Eastern Europe. Uh, the Road to Oxiana I read later, but this was, um, Oxiana was kind of the, the historic name for the, the route of the Panj River or the um, Amudarya and uh, nowadays um, the border of Afghanistan and Tajikistan has some interesting parts to it. The Great Game I'm sure most of you are familiar with. I only read that in college after I had a very pretty uh, deep-seated interest in Central Asia already, but it certainly expanded that a bit. And I'll just uh, mention here the University of Central Asia, which I found out about in 2005 while doing some research. And now it's, um, at that time, it was kind of a dream. Now it's really a reality. There's actual campus and students in three different places in Central Asia where people can study and get degrees. Uh, and those, all those things kind of together combined to make the place very interesting for me. There's a um, quote here uh, from Lord Curzon, who was the Viceroy for India around the turn of the century. And it says, you know, as you can read, descending from the roof of the world, its waters tell of forgotten peoples and whisper secrets of unknown lands. Along the legendary watermark between Iran and Tehran, they have worn a deep channel into the fate of humanity. Worldwide conquerors in Alexander and a Tamerlane slake their horses thirst in the Oxus stream, Lord Curzon. This is, uh, I, like, I like this quote. I mean, he's a mixed bag as a historical figure, of course, but um, you know, it's kind of typifies the romantic imagery of Central Asia, certainly at that time, but I think also today for some people, including myself, this is a picture of that same river that he talks about in the Wakhan Corridor area in the far Eastern part of Tajikistan, Northeast Afghanistan. And uh, you can see a fortress in the, in the lower left part of the screen, Yamchun Fortress which allegedly was around at the time of Marco Polo and uh, was written about then. And, um, you know, it's in a bit of disrepair, but it's still a very interesting site to visit. This is, these are my pictures from when I was there in 2011, June. I'm also going to jump to a little uh, anecdote about my time in Tajikistan. This is Zorkul Nature Reserve. Anyone, any of you who can read Cyrillic can read that part there. Um, you can see the road is not much of a road, mostly a dirt path out in this area of far eastern, southeastern Tajikistan. I visited here in 2011 as part of a work trip to assess the border security needs in the region and see what we might want to do in terms of uh, new infrastructure projects. You can see more e easily on the map here where I've uh, had a, a star where you can find Zorkul. This picture in the upper right is uh, an image of it. And then the road in the lower left you can see and also with the, the cars driving over some of the marshier stretches of that um, area. I brought this example partly because this old uh, watercolor from Thomas Edward Gordon, when he called this lake, Zorkul Lake Victoria, back in the late 1800s, 
Uh, you can see from the picture, I mean, it could be many lakes around the world, but it does bear some resemblance to this uh, lake here, which I've also taken a picture of on the same trip. This was actually a little bit east of Zorkul. It's a seasonal lake, which dries up, I guess, uh, in part of the year and then fills up later. And you can see some similarities in the mountains in the background. It's just very interesting to see some of these places that were the site of exploration back in those days and to, to see their reality. Um, so there we go. So here's me, my, uh, the shorter of the two people on the upper left, and then my boss at the time, Eric Cameron, in front of that very lake. You can see a little bit bigger picture in the, the map of the Wakhan Corridor, where it lies. And we had a little bit of an adventure. This is about 4,000 to 4,200 meters above sea level, uh, which is basically most peaks in Colorado. So very high elevation. Um, and the guy I was traveling with, one of the drivers, got himself stuck in the mud in one of our government SUVs. And it's not a place where you can just call AAA um, or any villager, really. There's hardly any human settlements out in this area. And so for the next four hours, we dug out with uh, two small spade shovels into the, from the mud so we could free our vehicles because the second vehicle also got stuck when we were trying to pull out the first vehicle. So we were quite stranded. Um, it was a short, maybe 45 minute drive to the hunting lodge where we'd stayed the night before. Uh, there's no hotels out there, but it would have been probably a full day hike to get back to that place in high elevation. And we were trying to call on the satellite phone to get some help, but we could not uh, reach anybody. And so we uh, had to go the old fashioned way. And eventually we got unstuck and continued along the border to where you can see the border with China uh, as it goes up the eastern part of Tajikistan. And these are just some more pictures from that same trip. This picture in the bottom center is uh, basically a taxi along that border road with Afghanistan. Uh, the only vehicle or only people we saw for about 24 hours uh, trekking along that road. They made full use of it. The other pictures are us at a couple different border outposts. One is located on an old fortress in the top left screen. And then you see some backpackers, Fulbright scholars in the lower left at the cross-border Tajik-Afghan market in Karog, the capital of Eastern Tajikistan. And in the upper right, you see us giving some books, donating books to the Kyrgyz school in Mergab, which was a Russian uh, post, military post and trading post in the late 1800s, and then became a small city as time developed. Uh, it's the capital of that um, far eastern region of Tajikistan. So I tell this story as a, an example of how, you know, you should be interested in Central Asia as well. This is kind of me advertising the region, saying that there's a lot of adventure to be had there. This was just one little uh, story of my own experience, but I know a lot of other people have had very similar and fun times, and I could tell you hours of, of different similar stories, uh, but this one has some nice pictures to go with it and tells you uh, that Central Asia really is a land adventure, but it's also uh, obviously, there's there's many people that can find interest there with the uh, languages and history and culture and politics. So to pivot to kind of my specialty, uh, diplomacy and the U.S. government, why is the United States interested in Central Asia? Well, we mentioned this. I foreshadowed a little bit. You've got some very interesting neighbors that are all of interest to us: Afghanistan, Russia, China, Iran. At different times in our history over the last 30 years. Each of these countries has had more of an influence on our perspectives in Central Asia. Uh, so it goes up and down depending on the, the climate. But it's, um, 
they're always a little bit of a confluence of factors in, in terms of the regional powers here and international powers that we're uh, in some ways in competition with. The shadow of Afghanistan is uh, always pretty um, prominent in, in Tajikistan especially, which has the longest border with Afghanistan among the Central Asian countries. And it's, I mean, if you exclude Pakistan, obviously it's South Asia. So it's um, always been a very big focus, at least since 2011, sorry, 2001, uh, when the uh, Afghan war began. And it's still obviously a big factor right now with everything going on there. So a lot of people view Tajikistan and Central Asia through this perspective. This is an old, you know, artistic rendition of Central Asia, which really shows the South Asian perspective, Afghanistan perspective. And I think a lot of people do not get beyond this uh, when they're looking at Central Asia. You can see uh, recent developments uh, with Afghanistan map on the right here showing which areas are under Taliban control or contested by Taliban control. In the upper right along the um, you know, Badakhshan region and Wakhan corridor up into Kunduz and Takhar, those are the areas that border Tajikistan. You can see all of those are basically under either Taliban control or contested, uh, except for some of the population centers. And then this map on the upper left here shows the bases that we did have in Central Asia in the past. One was the Manas Air, Air Base in Bishkek, which was there until 2014, I believe, until um, the Kyrgyz authorities um, forced us to leave that. And then the base in Karshi, Uzbekistan, was also a large base at, at, it, at one time. Uh, Dushanbe has not hosted a large military presence of the United States in its history. They have a large Russian uh, military presence. But there's a lot of other things that we do or that we have interest in Central Asia that relate to Afghanistan, Russia, and China, and Iran. I've taken some excerpts from our Central Asia strategy uh, that was released in February 2020. You don't have to read this uh, in detail. I've highlighted some of the key elements. You can see some trends here. Stable, stable, secure, stability, prosperity, stability. Uh, basically, stability and security are the two buzzwords uh, that are used most often when talking about Central Asia. And they're not just words, you know, they are actual interests of the US government. Um, you know, we are very interested in seeing that country develop economically and have, um, you know, a political, some kind of level of uh, political stability that allows for protection of human rights and basic rights and allows people to live their lives in a normal fashion and not turn to extremism and terrorism and become another threat, uh, not only to the region, but to the United States uh, ultimately. And so a lot of our programming, our development assistance and other assistance, security sector assistance is aimed at addressing um, these two goals, stability and security. This kind of expands on what we had just shown. These are the official objectives uh, for us, the United States government in Central Asia. You see the word sovereignty and independence used quite a lot as well. Sovereignty, I mean, you know what these terms mean, but in, in terms of, uh, in practice, this means essentially they're able to, to exercise their own self-governance without undue coercion or control from regional powers or other powers. Uh, China and Russia are, are, are probably the primary actors that are of concern in this region. Uh, Russia has a lot of economic leverage, a lot of Central Asians work in Russia, and so there's a lot of economic dependence on Russia's economy, and the Russian government can use that to its own uh, ends. China has been um, developing Central Asia's infrastructure 
an economy quite a bit. And this has come with a lot of debt and a lot of uh, strings attached in some cases. So China has really expanded its economic power in the region, which also threatens the sovereignty of many Central Asian countries. Independence is kind of uh, goes along with this. Uh, you know, if you're able to exercise self-governance, then you are truly independent. You can uh, act and cooperate with a number of actors and not just be beholden to one or, the, or another. We talked about violent extremism and terrorist threats. This is partly the Afghanistan issue and number two, but there are homegrown, homegrown terrorists as well in Central Asia. The number of terrorist incidents are very, very low in Central Asia, but there are a lot of foreign terrorist fighters that come from Central Asia, especially Tajikistan, if you look at it per capita, and Uzbekistan. And they've gone to Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan to fight, and some of them come back. Um, generally speaking, the local governments are reluctant to take them back there. They are uh, looking for the best means to do so. And we have been offering some assistance in that realm, but some of them do go to Afghanistan. We have had many reports of ethnic Tajiks or Tajik citizens fighting in Afghanistan um, and Uzbeks as well and others. So that's a big threat uh, that we are hoping to address in our, in our programming. We've talked about stability. Connectivity is kind of a buzzword too. I think for most people in the region, it doesn't make a lot of sense. They don't understand what, what that means exactly. And really this is just um, a more of a means to an end. Connectivity helps economic development. It helps political stability. If the countries do not close their borders arbitrarily with each other, then you can help foster uh, economic development over the longer term. And so that's been a big plus since Uzbekistan and Tajikistan warmed their relations uh, after the death of Islam Karimov. Uh, we've seen improved connectivity and, and bilateral relations, of course, between those two countries. And generally speaking, the rest of Central Asia gets along pretty well. Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan have had some issues over their border, their shared border over the last years, several years, but especially the last year or so. Uh, there's been some clashes. Some have led to deaths, of course. Uh, in April was the most recent and, and most severe of those, which I think was many people would say was on the brink of a, a real conflict between the states. Um, but thankfully, this is really more of a local-led uh, situation, and the, the, the central governments were uh, exercising caution and were able to de-escalate that conflict. But overall, relations between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan have been relatively good. And uh, you can say the same about the other Central Asian countries. So we try to foster and promote that connectivity and uh, good neighborly among Central Asian countries as a means of promoting development, economic development, and also political stability. Promoting rule of law, reform, and human rights. Uh, obviously, this is, I mean, this is what the U.S. government does everywhere, not just in Central Asia. Uh, it's uh, sometimes difficult in some of these environments to, to see positive uh, improvement, but uh, we are always talking about it. We are always pushing for it, sometimes privately, in bilateral meetings with the local authorities, sometimes publicly through tweets or social media posts. Um, but we are doing many things, sometimes uh, through little grants or other projects to, to help promote at least the values of democracy and human rights in the region. And uh, we hope that that will um, you know, lead to, to reforms and positive improvements. Lastly, this is kind of um, sort of the America first element of this all, uh, if you could say promoting American investment uh, in Central Asia. 
Uh, this is not a new thing. I, I don't want to uh, characterize it as something uh, as a new phenomenon. It's always been a goal of the United States government to promote US business abroad and to support businesses that are already abroad and working abroad. Um, but I think this was a little bit more of a focus in the last five years, and it will remain uh, to some extent an element in Central Asia. There are challenges to investing in Central Asia. It comes out in our annual investment climate reports uh, for each country. So you can read those at your leisure, um, but we do support the few businesses that are active in Tajikistan, uh, mostly through consultation. And um, they know that if, if the business is not treated quite fairly, that the US embassy will somehow get involved uh, and, and make an issue out of it. And so that gives them a little bit of um, uh, a safety net for when they are investing in the region. I took uh, the, the text from our Central Asia study, uh, sorry, Central Asia strategy and put it into one of these word cloud apps. And this is what you come out with. We already talked about a lot of these things. You can see Afghanistan is pretty prominent. Um, there's still obviously a lot of people that focus on that element of Central Asia. Uh, will there be spillover? Security goes hand in hand with this. If we want to secure the region, uh, we don't want to see any kind of bleeding over from Afghanistan into the other Central Asian republics. Those two go together, security and stability, stable. Uh, sovereignty is in the, in the strategy, independence, prosperity, that goes with economic development. If you have a functioning economy and prosperity, the risk for radicalization, violent extremism goes down. Malign influence in Central Asia. We talked about this a little bit. Um, Russia, China. I've got some more data on China, so I'll start with them. Basically, they they have what has been called debt diplomacy uh, by uh, uh, academician uh, Sam Parker and others, and this comes in the in the form of investing in large infrastructure projects which the local governments cannot afford and are unlikely to really pay back in full in terms of the uh, you know, dollar amount of it. And so in some cases, this results in land concessions or, well, let's say not say land concessions, uh, the rights to mine minerals under their land in their countries. And um, there is the threat that this could lead at some point to territorial concessions, because you'll see in a later slide, Tajikistan and, and Kazakhstan have done that in the past. And so some people worry that, that might, it might lead to that again in the future. But for the present time, it's basically um, mineral rights, uh, silver, gold mines in Tajikistan primarily, uh, but other mining rights as well. And it just gives them leverage. You know, China can always say, you know, the debts are due and we can let them go if you do this for us. And so that's part of the coercion element uh, that the local countries can support China on the world stage in terms of human rights, especially in regards to Xinjiang and the Uyghurs and other minorities in that province. Tajikistan has kind of um, gone a little bit back and forth on supporting China on the world stage. Most recently, they did sign on to a um, some kind of resolution basically saying that people should not uh, uh, interfere in China's internal affairs. And so that was, um, you, can, you can view that as a likely uh, result of this economic and political influence that China has. It also, um, you know, these projects are not necessarily job creators for Tajiks, um, oftentimes, almost always these contracts come with a certain quota that has to be done by Chinese laborers, Chinese company executes it. Uh, there are some Tajiks who are employed in almost all cases, I would say, or locals, let's say Kyrgyz, Kazakhs and other countries. But a lot of this is really job creation for Chinese and, and uh, helping Chinese companies. 
You can see in this graph on the lower right that uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan are two of the most debt distressed countries in the whole world vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. This is another chart which shows the level of investment China has had in Central Asia. You can see it's gone up quite a bit from 2010 until 2018. And then the last couple of years, it's been also high. I don't know the exact data, but it's uh, it has not fallen off, I would say. Here you can see a few Central Asian countries make this list of the top um, donor kind of uh, infrastructure assistance uh, re recipient countries in the world. I mentioned already the land concessions between Kazakhstan and Tajikistan to China. This is pretty in the weeds, but you can see at least some visual depiction of, of the little bit of territory that was swapped. In Tajikistan, it was almost all given and not received. I think in Kazakhstan, it was a bit more even, but in both cases, uh, China, I think, came away feeling pretty good about uh, the results of that. It's not clear exactly what uh, Tajikistan received in result of, uh, in response for giving away this land in 2011, early 2011. Uh, there's been speculation, but I have not seen any definitive reporting on that. This is a sign of their also uh, security interests in the region, China's security interests and military interests. They have built an, a Chinese base. It's like a tri, supposedly got tri-government base based on um, Eurasianet and Washington Post reporting in the far southeastern corner of Tajikistan. This is a picture of where I think the base is uh, from back in 2011, when I was on that same border trip that I talked about at the beginning. Uh, I took this picture and this is uh, China, the mountains in the background and the river separates the two. If you go right along that river, you can see a faint fence down there in the middle right corner of the picture. That fence is basically the border fence between Tajikistan and Afghanistan and China. And um, it seems like uh, recently some Kyrgyz shepherds, uh, Kyrgyz ethnic minority groups in, in Afghanistan used that road such as it is. It's basically a dirt path from the Wakhan corridor to flee into Tajikistan, uh, fleeing Taliban control. And they were actually sent back uh, ultimately um, after things calmed down. This is a closer view of that border outpost, uh, Kyrgyz shepherds from Tajikistan using, using it for their quarters and myself here in the black sweatshirt, my, my colleague talking to them. Apparently this has been renovated and looks much nicer now and has Chinese uh, border guards or military occupying it. Here you can see, um, now we switch to Russia. We mentioned already there are Russian troops there. It's estimated between 6,000 and 7,000 troops are based in, the, uh, in Tajikistan at their 201st uh, Airborne Division. And it's a little bit, hour and a half or so south of Dushanbe. And that's their largest military presence outside of Russia's borders. CSTO, Collective Security Treaty Organization, includes Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Uh, Kazakhstan. The countries engage in joint military exercises somewhat regularly. And then there's the Eurasian Economic Union, which is sort of a rival to the EU, which includes Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. And there's uh, certainly pressure for Tajikistan to join. So far, they have resisted but it's, it's by no means a foregone conclusion that it'll remain that way forever. Um, so you can see Russia and Tajikistan are economically dependent on, on Russia the most, uh, Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan as well. And sorry, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan are, are economically dependent uh, uh, on, on Russia. Russian propaganda is very 
pervasive. It's not necessarily directed at Central Asia in many cases. There's not a lot of uh, news reports that are specific about local issues. I think you see more in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, not that much in Tajikistan, but there is just propaganda in general that seeps through and people watch on Russian TV and through Sputnik online um, that really pushes the Russian narratives. You can see in terms of um, person, people to people ties, economic dependence, Tajikistan tops the list, followed by Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. Uh, these are a combination of work visas, student visas, and resident permits over the course of about three years. And it's, um, it's very high for Tajikistan. They estimate about a million Tajiks are living and working in, Tajik in Russia, and they're sending home uh, money, which is equivalent to somewhere between a third and a half of uh, Tajikistan's GDP. Um, I've seen some figure that about 75% of families in Tajikistan have someone in their family who is sending back money from Russia. Uh, so it's very tightly connected. And so even if you're not getting propaganda in Tajikistan or in Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or elsewhere, um, you have family members that are living in Russia and they're ensconced in it. And so they come back with those perspectives and they become partly the perspectives of the family. Here you can see um, um, attitudes towards Russia and uh, China and the United States in Central Asian countries, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and um, uh, Turkmenistan. Tajikistan is not included in this um, study. But you can see that Tajikistan, or sorry, that the uh, United States is not viewed all that favorably overall compared to these other countries, um, which is disappointing because it's kind of my job to help uh, improve the view of the United States in Central Asia, among another, uh, other goals. But it's very hard to compete with some of these uh, elements we've talked about, the pervasive media influence of Russia, the people-to-people -people ties, and then China, they get a lot of credit for the infrastructure projects. Uh, some people think that they're the only country investing in Central Asia's infrastructure, which they do get a lot of press for road and bridge projects and other projects, but it is a bit more even when you calculate the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, and World um, USAID, USAID, which all put into a lot of investment into Central Asia. <clears throat> so these are, um, the percentage of people who think, you know, uh, Russia is relatively favorable to their country or China versus the United States. You can see Russia has the highest rating. China is relatively low. There's not a lot of love for China, even though there is generally some gratitude towards the infrastructure assistance. Uh, there's still a lot, a lot of cultural divide there. The United States barely tracks in this, unfortunately. Um, so there is, a, you know, hearts and minds that we're dealing with that we're trying to uh, win over. Sorry. But when you talk about where do you want your kids to study, you know, the United States does pretty well in that realm. We're still trailing behind Russia and um, relatively even with China. <clears throat> but um, there is still a soft power element of the United States appeal that we try to play up. And we do push through exchange programs and other programs that helps uh, make this dream a possibility for some people. Here are some of the things we've done to help counteract Russian and Chinese influence in the region and to a lesser extent Iran. You know, English language training is something we do all around the world. Media training, sending Tajik and Central Asian journalists to the United States on reporting tours and study tours. Media literacy for the whole population, not obviously everyone, but as many as we can include, trying to expand knowledge of what propaganda looks like, what it means and how you can detect it. We also 
obviously are very active in social media. Our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram pages are quite uh, relatively popular. And uh, we push out messages usually two or three times a day. Traditional media has lost a lot of its reach, but we do have interviews with the ambassador and others pretty regularly trying to explain our position, humanize our mission, and show the real benefits that our programs have had. That's the next element. All of our assistance projects, USAID does a very good job of assistance, but they're not always as good at um, amplifying it or telling the story. So my job is to partly to, to help package that, to make it uh, understandable and so on to a wide audience. Exchange programs, American Spaces, you might not know, but are they're, they're kind of like little programming centers. They're kind of like a library, but they have classrooms and, and kind of a tech lab, media lab, where people can go and, and learn different skills and, um, and meet other like-minded people, learn about exchange program opportunities and meet Americans. We give presentations there sometimes from the embassy. We bring musical groups, dance groups, and other performance groups to the region. Not that often, but enough where you know, we're showing a positive side of American culture that reminds people uh, that they do like an America in some ways, even if uh, some of those polls show that they have some distrust towards us. Speaker programs tend to be academic or somehow um, functional, business-related entrepreneurship, you know, social media type trainers. And then direct messaging. Sometimes we do occasionally counter a specific narrative that's out there from China or Russia or Iran. Um, or we just push out our policy messages, which have sort of oblique references to some of these powers. Since I mentioned languages in Central Asia, I um, wanted to give at least some uh, overview of my understanding of the situation um, to put you in the right direction, because I know some of you are, are really focused on the language aspect here. So Persian, although it's only the primary language in Tajikistan, if we're talking about the former Soviet republics of Central Asia, it's also the primary language in Afghanistan, Iran, and two of the most populated and historic cities of Uzbekistan, Samarkand and Bukhara. You can still hear Persian uh, dialect of it spoken in, uh, in those cities if you go there. And I've been there about 10 years ago now and uh, got, got by just, just fine with Persian, uh, Tajiki dialect of Persian. Turkic languages are basically the rest of Central Asia, uh, including, including some minorities in Afghanistan, Uzbek and Turkmen, and then minorities in Iran. The Azeri is a, is a very large minority group, and then the Turkmen as well. But Russian really still remains the lingua franca of the region. It's um, especially popular among educated middle-aged people in the cities, urban centers, Dushanbe or Tashkent, Bishkek. Uh, when you go out into the villages and the regions, it'll not do you as well to speak Russian but you'll still find people generally who can speak it and, and function in it. Um, but it's, um, it's, some will say that it's dying out, but I think it's not going to ever die out completely. I don't think we see this as a linear uh, trend down to zero. I think it's more or less leveled off. And uh, certainly the younger generation speaks it less, but there is Russian training in school and people do speak, I mean, they have to speak it to go to Russia. And so I think it's gonna remain a pretty popular language for the region. Here you can see what uh, locals have said in a, a survey by IWPR, International um, Institute for War and Peace reporting. Uh, they asked people where do they get their news and what language do they prefer to get their news. In all four of these countries surveyed, I think it's all of them except for Turkmenistan, they um, more than more than 50% said Russian in each case. Uh, the local language was next, 30% uh, roughly, 25, 30% in each country. And then English polls around 10 to 
and then other languages after that. So people are still getting their news in Russian, which is a challenge because obviously a lot of news content in Russian has a certain slant that is not uh, favorable to the United States or to our uh, interests. And so we try to counteract that the best we can. Here you can see the age difference. Younger populations tend to be more uh, local language focused or English focused, whereas the older generation, very low English level and more uh, preference for Russian, which is what I've seen in my own experiences as well. So also adding a little other element, because I know some of you are interested in, in really starting a career in Central Asia, and probably you know about all these opportunities more or less, but I wanted to highlight some. I find that when you're in the region, it really helps a lot to make connections to, to find opportunities. And I'll give a couple examples. One of the speakers through this program a couple weeks ago, Artemy, I can't remember his last name, but I met him back in 2011 um, at a you know pub in uh, Dushanbe and on a hike, we went on one or two Sunday hikes together. And so he um, he's obviously a respected academic in the region. And there's a lot of other people that I've met in similar means. And um, those kinds of networks can help you find opportunities that you never would have thought about. I see my friend, old friend James Pickett is on this call as well. We had a number of hikes together and uh, had some fun uh, as well in uh, Central Asia. And I've met a number of people through that means. And so if you can get your foot in the door in the region in person, you can really meet some people that'll open opportunities for you. Teaching English is a pretty common method for that. Uh, you can do other things locally, but that's the most commonly demanded skill. Work or volunteer for an NGO or a national organization. Some of these you know pretty well. I highlight uh, Eurasia Foundation of Central Asia, that's EFCA, E-F-C-A. They have some opportunities uh, for interns out of college, sometimes paid or unpaid, um, that you might be interested in. Peace Corps, unfortunately, it's only an opportunity for Kyrgyzstan or the Kyrgyz Republic, as we say now. Um, but it's uh, still an opportunity and hopefully this might expand in the future. Um, so just keep that in mind. Fulbright program, this is something I didn't really know much about when I was in college, uh, but it's a great opportunity. You can teach English without any experience or conduct research or become a scholar in the region and it's fully paid for, you know, you can live okay for that year that you're there. There is a three month usually volunteer program at uh, US embassies. You can become an intern unpaid uh, over the summer typically at any embassy or consulate in the region. I'm not sure exactly how you start that process, but if you reach out by email to some you know, email directory you can find there, uh, usually they can make that happen. Virtual student foreign service intern, you can do right from the United States. It's like the first one I mentioned, but it's, um, you know, it's all done virtually through email. It's about 10 hours a week line of effort and it gets your foot in the door, makes some contacts as well. Critical language scholarship program. You can study Persian in Dushanbe or Russian in Bishkek. Um, that's a great opportunity for summer program to improve your language skills. Born fellowship or scholarship. I'm not as familiar about this one, but I've met a number of people that did this. Uh, I guess you get a pretty good stipend to study, to improve your language skills in the region while there. Uh, all the countries are considered priority countries except for Turkmenistan. Um, but I don't think, I think you're still able to if, you're, if you find a way to do it in Turkmenistan. University of Central Asia, it's a really beautiful campus, new facility, uh, very well designed um, university. If you can find a way to study there and which supports your academic goals, it's a great way to get your foot in the door in the region. I would love to do it myself, but it's a little tough with my, uh, my job situation. 
you can join an NGO or some other organization in, in DC, primarily in for DC or elsewhere, you know, think tank, media outlet. I mentioned a few there. Oxus Society is a very new one formed in the last year or so uh, by some people that I know. It's uh, very focused on Central Asia, which is great. I don't think we've had one like that before. Or you can join the Foreign Service, uh, which I can talk about more in the QA if you're interested. I'm sure some of you looked into it already. Uh, you don't need to have a special degree. There's not specific background required. Just have to be a certain age and have a high school degree and pass the you know, in-person interview test stage and uh, uh, essays. Uh, but I managed it. You know, People can do it. Here's a picture of Edward Lemon. Uh, I mentioned him because he was an intern in Tajikistan when I was there in 2011-12 at the Eurasia Foundation of Central Asia. And uh, we hung out together a lot. And now he's like one of the leading experts on Tajikistan in the world, as far as I can tell. Uh, he gets cited in a number of articles about the region. And he's about my age, probably around 36. And so he was there, you know, doing unglamorous work for an NGO, which uh, made some, had some good results, good programs. And now he's a really respected professor. And so if you get your foot in the door, I mean, I'm sure that's not why he became successful, but, um, you know, he was there learning about the region while doing something else. You don't have to be there doing research necessarily. So if you get your uh, start somewhere, it can lead to a lot of things. I believe we are right at our time limit and I'll open up for questions at this time.